Caroline and Stanley for the invite uh, to speak in this. Um, so my group's major interest then is in using wearable sensor devices uh, essentially to try and uh, help redefine our understanding, primarily physical activity, but also sleep and other lifestyle and health behaviours, um, and in terms of their association with uh, disease outcomes. Uh, obesity, obviously, is one of interest, uh, and also then uh, clinical outcomes would be cardiovascular disease um, or, or cancers as well. So, and why am I interested in physical activity, or, or why might I want to redefine our understanding of hit or sleep? Well, all of, for example, with Physical Activity UK Chief Medical Officer guidelines or US Surgeon General guidelines, the uh, guidance that we should do 150 minutes a week of moderate intensity, uh, vigorous, uh, moderate intensity uh, activity uh, for health benefit, it's essentially relied on self-reported data uh, from cohorts come back through the years. And I hope I convince you with the first uh, few minutes of this talk that self-reported data certainly got quite a few limitations for, uh, with respect to lifestyle health behaviours. Um, and these principles apply very much to sleep as well, whereby current uh, National Sleep Foundation guidelines in the US are uh, whereby people should aim for between seven and nine hours sleep uh, per night. So with physical activity, uh, we've uh, traditionally had two ways then to measure this. So one is via self-report, whereby uh, we ask people via questionnaires uh, how much activity they uh, believe they do. And uh, the other uh, form uh, of measuring this is via accelerometers. So this is two population representative uh, surveys, one in the US, uh, the National Health Nutrition Examination Survey, and the other in the, uh, here in England, then, the Health Survey for England. And these were taken around 10 years ago in population representative samples. Uh, the type of accelerometer used is a hip one. And I guess the uh, main thing we can see is that when we're using uh, these uh, different ways of assessing uh, physical activity, or the amount of adults in the population uh, who we think meet physical activity guidelines, we get really different answers uh, using these two different instruments. Um, of course, maybe some people might argue then that uh, North Americans are a bit even more over-optimistic than their English counterparts as well. But, um, and of course, this raises the question, well, which one of these two estimates is correct? From, there's a lot of evidence, I think, to support the use of devices is... Uh, uh, is more reliable in terms of it is much more strongly associated with gold standard measures of physical activity energy expenditure, i.e. doubly labeled water in control scenarios. And also there's emerging data coming from uh, some smaller cohorts thus far that uh, device-based measures of activity, or in this case walking, uh, are more strongly associated with mortality endpoints than as self-reported outcomes. And it's the same story with sleep, um, whereby so a recent paper then uh, in Jack uh, was uh, assessing the uh, build-up of uh, plaque burdens uh, in individuals using the sleep questionnaire data. There's no apparent association whatsoever, uh, as we would expect with a more noisy instrument. Uh, however, then using the activity-based data compared to reference group of seven, seven to eight hours a night, those who slept less than six hours uh, had a, uh, a marked increase then in terms of plaque burden then that has, been, that has uh, developed. So again, using the device-based measures helps us get at uh, more precise measures of, of exposure then, which helps us uh, better identify associations with disease outcomes. But self-reported data isn't just noisy and messy and it's just some form of random error. So if I create a large enough study, I'll get around this random error. Uh, there's also differential error too. So we uh, consider a, a study then published uh, by some folk in the uh, Cancer Epidemiology Unit looking at the biobank data set. And I'll come back and explain this more uh, in a few minutes looking at self-reported physical activity versus accelerometer-measured physical activity, uh, there is differential uh, uh, effects then based on, for example, uh, age. Uh, so whereby younger people uh, seem to be a little bit better at, uh, in terms of their self-reported activity, <coughs> more strongly associated with the objective measure uh, than it is in older age groups. Uh, obviously of interest to this audience then, uh, BMI status, so those with lower BMI, uh, their self-reported activity is more strongly associated with 
the objective measure or the device-based measure uh, that is uh, those with a higher BMI. So, so there's differential bias introduced by the use of self-reported instruments as well. And a lot of the uh, evidence uh, uh, we also believe might be, in terms of activities association with certain disease types, uh, might be prone to reverse causation. So some very nice examples coming out of the, out of the Whitehall study, uh, looking at or investigating physical activity and dementia, so uh, whereby so they've got up to 28 years of follow-up here. And if one would have considered uh, just uh, the first few years of follow-up, uh, it would appear that uh, higher levels of physical activity are associated with a, a lower level of dementia incidence. And however, then, as one goes back uh, further in time, it appears to be more of a reverse causation effect that is happening here, um, whereby uh, dementia, as you can imagine, has got a very long prodromal period of probably up to 20 years or thereabouts. And so it might it may very well, very plausibly very may well affect one's activity status um, before they recognise or are diagnosed with the disease. Um, so there's, again, uh, this might open up questions then as to some other disease areas, might reverse causation be an issue as well? Uh, and then finally, thinking of, say, physical activity, and one could also imagine this applies to sleep, uh, there's a question then as to what is the true dose-response relationship uh, as I do ever more levels of activity, do I get uh, essentially uh, greater reductions in risk uh, associated with disease? Um, so we consider, or in this side here, uh, data coming from the Median Women study, uh, this is people reporting their frequency of uh, activities uh, with respect to coronary heart disease or cerebrovascular disease, uh, and there appears to be this sort of strange effect in whereby people who are more frequently active um, seem to have a less favourable risk profile to those who do a moderate amount of activity. So is this some, some something strange going on with our measurement instruments or is it a true effect that there is a, a diminishing, uh, uh, essentially diminishing returns in doing more activity? And as well, we're quite interested in what is the benefit of doing extra levels of activity. So this is a meta-analysis looking at coronary heart disease uh, with self-reported physical activity and this is pulling lots of studies together and it appears that those say, in the top categories then might have a hazard ratio of about, about 0.8 or thereabouts so a 20% reduction in, uh, in coronary heart disease risk in this case but if we were to measure with more precise instruments might that uh, uh, apparent association be stronger or weaker uh, we don't know so putting that background into context, then, uh, to my mind, there are some key unanswered questions, or at least so much uncertainty around current answers in them that we really ought to investigate them better, such as are higher levels of activity uh, more strongly associated then with uh, lower disease incidence? What types of activity uh, are associated with lower disease incidence? Should I be doing just more moderate and light activity, or is there, is there a benefit in doing more vigorous activity? Uh, and of course, then, uh, we were thinking of reverse causation then. Are these apparent associations even causal, or so is it activity that's important, or the ability to be active that is important? So what we'd ideally like then is a uh, a very large study, first of all, uh, that has got prospective longitudinal follow-up for a long time, and ideally with an objective device-based measures as well to get a nice objective measurement of one's uh, physical activity or sleep behaviours. And uh, as Caroline had mentioned there earlier, uh, the UK Biobank is, a, I think, a fabulous resource to answer questions such as this. Uh, so I imagine many of us in the audience are familiar with the UK Biobank, so it's a prospective cohort of half a million individuals, um, recruited probably around 15 years ago, between 10 and 15 years ago or thereabouts. Uh, there's record linkage into the uh, NHS system then for uh, hospital admissions, for mortality records, cancer registries. Uh, on approximately around a third of the cohort, there's uh, linkage to primary care records, and uh, Biobank are working on trying to uh, uh, get all primary care records on everyone. So it's an incredibly rich resource with lots of different measurements on individuals. 
And the particular component that I'm most interested uh, in and lead on then is the physical activity monitoring component. So in 2013 to 2015, uh, we give out wrist-worn accelerometers uh, to individuals, and they sh uh, essentially they look like research-grade Fitbit devices. Um, they're not quite as nice looking as a Fitbit. So there was a target then to uh, recruit 100,000 individuals to wear this device. So to achieve that, we had to send out around a quarter of a million email invites. Uh, so there's as with any research study, there's uh, a response bias to this. Um, so even UK Biobank itself has got a response bias to get half a million individuals and nine million invites had to be sent out. Um, so UK Biobank is definitely a, a, a typical health cohort, one would argue, that it's uh, in many ways some might argue the worried well. Uh, but then within the UK Biobank cohort, there is bias by uh, in terms of women were more likely to respond than men, uh, those who are older are more likely to agree to wear the devices. But if one looks at the uh, odds ratios for consent bias and that, they're all around 0 0.98, 0 0.99, so there is a statistically significant effect there, but I don't think it's particularly meaningful. Perhaps the largest uh, category of response bias is around ethnicity, whereby those from a non-white background were less likely to respond uh, with an odds ratio of about 0.9 or thereabouts. Uh, so then from that we were able to get around 103,000 data sets and a phenomenal thing about the Biobank cohort is the, um, the compliance uh, or uh, the engagement of the participants uh, whereby uh, basically what 93% of the participants wore the device for sufficiently long for us to get a good stable measure of their physical activity status. So there's incredible uh, participant engagement uh, with wearing this device. Um, so we're getting very good stable measurements on, on uh, almost everyone in this cohort. So there's obviously logistic challenges in collecting data on up to 100,000 individuals. Uh, and then as one can imagine, with these devices, what they do is they measure uh, acceleration uh, in three dimensions, uh, the X, the Y, and the Z directions, a hundred times a second. So for each participant, we're getting around 180 million movement readings per person times 100,000 people. So there's a very significant data processing challenge in that, and an even more significant challenge in trying to get out good stable measures of activity or sleep status from these devices. So we convened in, uh, uh, in one of the lowest forms of evidence, but an expert working group then to uh, go through the, uh, the literature then to come up with, uh, I guess, a, a current <coughs> state-of-the-art method then to process this, uh, this data. So we consider many things such as resampling the data. So these devices, I said, record 100 times per second. They actually don't. It fluctuates between 93 and 102 hertz, so we need to resample to its intended 100 hertz sample rate, and we need to calibrate the devices because if I put two devices down on the table, they should give the same reading, but they actually don't, so we need to calibrate the devices to ensure they actually do. Uh, we then combine the three movement directions together to get an idea of the overall amount of activity an individual is doing at any given, amount, any given moment in time, move effects in noise and gravity. Uh, if you give a device to 100,000 people, some will invariably not wear it all the time, so we need to identify when it's been worn, when it's not been worn, and to adjust our analysis for that. Um, so for example, if uh, Caroline takes the device off between 5pm and 7pm regularly, it might be because she's going off for a run, so if I get the average of the rest of her data, it's unfairly low. Whereas in someone like myself, I might try and cheat and take the device off overnight. So if I get the average of the rest of my data, it looks like I'm very active, um, whereby I've just uh, merely infl uh, uh, unfairly inflated my average. So we adjust for all those type of things in our analysis. Do they matter? Uh, yes, very much so. Um, so some of our colleagues in Cambridge then uh, conducted then this analysis in four different populations. And looking, for example, at just the calibration step, uh, if one takes that out, uh, we see the light grey lines for what activity levels might look like. Uh, Y-axis, uh, higher values, uh, equates to people being, or as a proxy for people being more active. And one might think the Brazilian population is twice as active as the UK population. Um, 
and maybe despite what some tabloids might like us to believe, I, that just doesn't seem uh, believable. So then once we perform the calibration step, uh, the populations then are much more comparable. So, so it's really key to get these uh, uh, essentially signal processing uh, decisions uh, correct and to be uh, properly thought through before one runs off to do health association analysis. And is this measure any good? Well, uh, it's been uh, validated against uh, doubly labelled water in 100 participants uh, in Cambridge who've got a similar age and sex uh, profile to the UK biobank population. Uh, we've also conducted an additional study within UK biobank uh, whereby we give 2,500 individuals a, a device to wear at four different time points through the year on the philosophy is if is a seven-day measurement a good measurement of a person's activity status for that period of time in their life? Um, so then looking at uh, one measure versus the mean of the other three measures and these two and a half thousand individuals, we see for our overall activity metric, uh, there's a within-person correlation value of around 0.8 or thereabouts. So a seven-day measure is actually very a very stable measure of one's physical activity status at that time in their life. Um, so it gives us confidence then in the measure in the 100,000 individuals uh, that we're getting a nice stable measure of physical activity status. So after doing all that careful work, then we can uh, begin to do some uh, descriptive analysis, uh, looking at, uh, for example, men versus women uh, by age, um, whereby women were just ever so slightly more active than men and then unsurprisingly there's a, a, a descent uh, or a gradient descent then by age um, so it's around a seven and a half percent lowering of or, or activity is seven and a half percent lower per each decade in life in a cross-sectional analysis and given the exquisite nature of the or of the uh, data that we have, and uh, we can then build up these 24-hour models of what human behavior or what human physical activity behavior looks like in UK biobank distance. X-axis is hour of day, y-axis is uh, a accelerometer measured vector magnitude, i.e. higher levels are a proxy for being for individuals being more active. So we can see, for example, uh, in both women and men, the older age groups in this light grey line compared to the younger counterparts. Um, are maybe approximately uh, having the same level of activity earlier in the day, then it's a market drop-off in the afternoons and evening times um, that we found in our data. So we've returned these variables back into the biobank resource. So now they're now uh, been actively used probably the last three or four years by researchers then to look at uh, associations with a range of, of uh, uh, different uh, health outcomes such as uh, obesity, which is of interest to many of us in here, uh, but also uh, with uh, mental uh, illnesses, particularly mood and uh, depressive disorders. Uh, there's uh, with schizophrenia and it's been associated with type 2 diabetes. Um, so there's uh, quite a number of publications out there now looking at cross-sectional associations with <coughs> disease outcomes. Uh, and along with Terry Dwyer at the uh, George Institute, uh, uh, we published a paper earlier this year, again looking at essentially all disease outcomes. Uh, and as one might imagine, uh, activity is associated with, I think it was everything except infectious disease. Um, so as we'd expect, cardiovascular disease is quite a strong association. Sorry to orientate us here. X-axis is uh, an inferred level of uh, minutes per week of moderate activity. Uh, the dotted line is our reference group for those with no uh, uh, apparent uh, history of chronic disease. Uh, and then on the Y then we've got various disease groups. So we can see, for example, those with mental health disorders do around, what, maybe around 160 minutes less uh, physical activity per week. And you might question, why is the mean around 700 minutes per week when the guidelines are 150 minutes per week? Um, uh, so the, the guidelines are based on self-reported data, and they are uh, that one should try and achieve 150 minutes per week uh, in addition to your normal baseline level. Uh, and as well, devices are much better at picking up incidental activity than the self-reported physical activity instruments, which uh, ask people to... 
uh, state the amount of activity they do in bouts of 10 minutes or more per week. So devices capture lots of extra incidental activity. So, uh, so we're not surprised that the estimate of uh, activ or moderate activity in healthy individuals is uh, apparently much higher than that uh, state and current guidelines. Uh, and of course, then you can drill this down then into much uh, more exquisitely into smaller uh, uh, details than by looking at particular diseases such as heart failure, uh, hypertension, etc. So I think it was around 150 different disease types we looked at in this paper. But the big caveat of all this is it's cross-sectional analysis. So uh, is physical activity lower in heart failure patients because they have heart failure uh, or are they getting heart failure because they have got low levels of activity? So obviously we can't answer that. However, enough time has now uh, accrued since that that we can begin to have uh, at least a look at incident uh, disease outcomes. So uh, we've currently got a paper then under preparation, or sorry, under review, uh, that's looking at physical activity in association with incident cardiovascular disease, uh, primarily looking at ischemic heart disease and cerebrovascular disease. So obviously we exclude participants with a prior history of cardiovascular disease. Uh, to aid interpretability, then we're just categorizing it into uh, uh, bicortiles into equal force to the distribution and performing a, a standard Cox regression analysis and stratified by age at risk and uh, adjusting for all the classic confounders that we would in a physical activity analysis. So, for this, we have 90,000 participants uh, included. Uh, with around a two and a half year follow-up, so then there's, a, there's a large range and deviation in that, uh, and I'll come back to that in a minute. Uh, we've around 1,400 incident cardiovascular events, uh, majority of those are non-fatal. And as one would expect, those uh, participants uh, in the lowest category of uh, activity levels uh, have a higher BMI, they smoke more, drink slightly more, uh, and, and higher levels of blood sugars and C-reactive protein. Now, if we use just the self-reported data in the biobank, uh, this is what we would find uh, by quartiles of self-reported activity. So uh, to orient it is here then, so we've got a reference group in the lowest quartile, and then for each increasing quartile, there's apparent benefits uh, in terms of incident cardiovascular disease for higher levels of activity, except in the highest group. Um, and this estimate we around a 17% reduction is pretty much uh, compa comparable to what we found in all previous meta-analysis of, uh, of a reduction around 20% or thereabouts. So what do we get when we use the uh, device-based measure? Uh, we get a much more marked uh, association with incident uh, disease outcomes uh, whereby it looks to be more of a linear relationship whereby as I uh, go into each uh, uh, increasing quartile or fourth of activity uh, there is a, a much lower uh, uh, hazard ratio uh, in terms of association with incident cardiovascular disease. So this makes it look like uh, physical activity with respect to cardiovascular disease outcomes uh, that activity might be much more important than we've previously thought. Now, you're going to say, well, there's probably just, what, around two and a half year follow-up on average. Surely there must be huge concerns or reverse causation in this, and there is. Um, but we've done uh, a whole host of sensitivity analysis. Uh, here is one, uh, whereby we've got our uh, different models, so our uh, baseline model on the graph I've shown you is model two, which is adjusted for all the usual uh, confounders. Uh, and then model three, uh, we're looking at uh, removing the first year of follow-up. Then model four, then we remove the second year of follow-up. And if you look at these hazard ratios uh, through the uh, different quartiles there, they're still pretty consistent. So, um, <coughs> so, so there's not a huge, or at least apparent, uh, reverse causation uh, effect that we've seen thus far. But I think we will have to be patient with the five-year follow-up, the 10-year follow-up, etc., with respect to this observational analysis. But we think these results uh, aren't completely uh, balmy because uh, there was a paper published then in the BMJ just last month by Ulf uh, Eckeland and his team. Then there was a prospective, uh, 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 sorry, meta-analyzed um, uh, study then of, uh, that included eight different studies, uh, around 36,000 participants, a so lower amount of participants, 
but a bit of a longer follow-up time of around five to six years thereabouts and a sort of 2,000 deaths um, and this is with respect to all-cause mortality. But again, if we look at the hazard ratio here uh, in the more active groups, uh, we can see it's around the 0 0.4, 0 0.5 hazard ratio, which is uh, very consistent with what we found with incident cardiovascular disease outcomes. So there certainly is a move in the physical activity community then towards more uh, seriously considering these um, uh, or, or redefining our understanding of how important activity might be with respect to disease outcomes. It might be in the past our self-reported instruments are very much uh, uh, underestimating the true association between activity and disease outcomes. So, uh, so that was uh, to reorientate ourselves back to the key question. So are higher levels of activity associated with lower disease incidence? Uh, yes, and perhaps to a much greater extent than we previously thought. Then the next question, of course, is, well, if activity is apparently beneficial for me, what types of activity should I do? And there are two challenges here. The first is, how might I, uh, first of all, identify what type of activity I am doing? Uh, and then secondly is how might I associate that with disease outcomes. So on the first part, uh, we've got uh, various activity traces here. So remember, we're recording this data 100 times a second in three different axes. And we're uh, trying to see then are there different movement characteristics or signatures uh, that are associated with sitting versus walking versus driving versus sleeping versus playing tennis, etc., or cycling. Um, and what we really like to do, of course, is to use machine learning techniques, and this is quite hard to interpret uh, some of these signals and to handcraft what walking might look like versus what driving might look like. And people have tried this in the past with machine learning methods, but there's been uh, two large uh, drawbacks to what's happened before. So one is uh, it's mostly been attempted by... Uh, maybe epidemiologists or exercise physiologists who mightn't have such computational knowledge and use, I'd say, the most appropriate methods. And secondly, the evaluation has been terrible because to train a machine learning method, uh, one needs to give it uh, some examples of whether a person is sitting or walking or driving. But all previous studies have taken place uh, in environments uh, such as this, which is a laboratory study, um, so uh, people come into an exercise lab and are trying to simulate uh, different types of activity. Uh, they're essentially asked to do an unrealistic set of activities in an unrealistic sequence for an unrealistic amount of time. Uh, so I think one is going to almost certainly develop unrealistic models then. Uh, so then the person isn't allowed to sit onto the kind of little speaker tells them what to do. And then my favourite example is just here, coming up soon. Uh, in the next uh, probably 15 seconds or thereabouts, whereby so an office chair is used to simulate pushing a trolley, then as if one is going to whatever Waitrose or Aldi, wherever it might be. So, so you can see this is a very unnaturalistic environment. So we'd really like to get uh, labels of human activity behaviours in free living environments. So what we use then are wearable camera-based devices. So they're worn via neck-worn lanyard, they take first-person point-of-view images, and the images look something like this. So an image is taken every 10, 15 seconds or thereabouts. Uh, and from that, it's almost bleeding obvious what type of behaviour a person's doing, driving, uh, one of my types of social interactions. We can catch people having a fry-up as they watch television there as well. So, so the, the camera is a very powerful device to try and... Uh, to essentially validate our accelerometer methods then in free living environments rather than in constrained laboratory environments. So what we do then is uh, we set up a study uh, with 150 participants who wore a camera uh, for a day, also wore the exact same accelerometer devices used in UK Biobank. Uh, so that means then from the accelerometer, from the camera, it's, we can label what type of activity one is doing and with the accelerometry trace, we can pull out then a, a series of a time domain features, frequency domain features. We put those through a random forest classification model then to make a preliminary prediction whether a person is walking, uh, sitting, uh, driving, etc. 
And then to smooth over those predictions, we use a hidden Markov model. So the philosophy is if the prediction is sleeping, sleeping, bicycling, sleeping, sleeping, it's unlikely a person went for a 30-second bike ride in the middle of their sleep, uh, so then we smooth over those predictions. So uh, in, to uh, evaluate that method then, so we got uh, a lot of minutes uh, or hours of annotated behaviour in three living environments from 150 individuals. From the camera data, we identified 230 different behaviour types of uh, human movement or activities. And with two different classification schema, uh, the one I'm going to mostly concentrate on is this one, whereby we try to identify sleep, uh, sedentary uh, activities, uh, light activities, walking, and moderate activity. And the overall accuracy or campus score is pretty respectable. It's not perfect. There's certainly much more room for improvement in this. But uh, it's pretty decent uh, first, uh, uh, say first stab at things. Uh, and then we deployed this to the UK Biobank data set. Uh, and it's got lots of face validity. So here we're looking at Biobank participants. Um, one of the questions they're asked is, are you a morning person or an evening person? There's kind of you know, maybe a bit of a morning person or I'm definitely a morning person. The same for evening people. So we've got the definitely morning people and the definitely evening people. X-axis is our day. Y-axis is a probability of those individuals being asleep uh, as using the machine learning method only uh, on, on accelerometry signals. And we get very clear differences in the expected direction at 8 a.m. on a weekend between morning people and evening people as to their likelihood of being asleep. On the right-hand side, we've got what I affectionately like to call as a Batman plot, uh, which is looking at uh, individuals and cycling-related behaviour. So we're looking at commuters, uh, those who don't cycle to work versus those who do cycle to work, and the accelerometer is picking up key spikes or picking up spikes in biking-related activity at key commute hours. So it gives us more confidence that these methods, they've got uh, validity in free living against a ground truth wearable camera uh, uh, reference tool, and also they've got face validity then when applied to a population uh, on a different data set, i.e. the UK Biobank data set. And, uh, I'll, I'll skip over this slide, but the measures do provide nice orthogonal sources of information, so they're not all um, uh, giving us essentially the same information with this correlation matrix. And that allows us then, in, in this case, 90,000 biobank participants to build up a model of what 24-hour movement behaviours look like. So again, reassuringly, uh, individuals are mostly asleep at 3 or 4 a.m., uh, and then during the day, there is, uh, as we'd expect, uh, with current society, then lots of sedentary activities and uh, walking and occurring at different parts throughout the day, because this is a mixture of people who are retired and not retired. It's just a, um, a showcase, then, of all 90,000 individuals uh, and a smaller amount of moderate activity, as one would expect. <coughs> But before we ran off to do any health association analysis in this, um, we also wanted to check how well do these models perform in a diseased population, a very inactive population. So uh, we went off to the dialysis unit here at the Churchill Hospital and gathered a relatively small data set, or a very small data set of just 25 individuals who are on dialysis. So they're an incredibly inactive cohort. So Whereas with a typical UK biobank participant would expect 28 milli-G has been their overall activity level. With the dialysis cohort, it's down at 15. Uh, for reference, biobank participants who've got a prior history of cardiovascular disease of diabetes um, have got a mean level of around 23 milli-gravitational units. This is an incredibly inactive cohort. They also wore the camera uh, and the accelerometer then to try and validate how well these methods work. And at first, might say, well, that's maybe a 74% classification accuracy is okay, but most of that has been driven by its uh, ability to uh, identify sedentary activity. So, as you can see, this confusion matrix of minutes of activity, uh, this cohort is incredibly sedentary, it dominates everything there. And so, we probe more uh, carefully then into uh, light activities. Uh, or walking or moderate activities, it doesn't perform particularly well. So the Kappa score in these is around 0.18 or thereabouts. So, so it's 
very good at identifying sedentary, so that makes the accuracy score look fabulous, but the CAPA score is actually quite poor in this. So that makes us then think, well, we know from the machine learning we can identify sleep very well, we can also identify sedentary behaviour very well, but we've got less confidence then in how we identify light, moderate activities. So what we've done is taken uh, prior approaches from literature using more, I would say, simplistic but accepted methods to identify moderate activities and vigorous activities. Um, so then we've got machine-learned sleep and sedentary, and then we've got the traditional moderate and vigorous, then anything that's left over must be light activity, which has been traditionally hard to measure by both approaches. So it's a nice method then of triangulating both together before we've gone off to do our health association analysis. And a key concern for this health association analysis is uh, considering that these uh, different components of activity uh, all form part of a 24-hour whole in a day. So I can't really use a traditional linear regression or a logistic regression method because that assumes if I, for example, increase time of moderate activity by a unit increase, that I hold everything else constant, but then if I increase moderate activity by a unit increase, that means I'm violating the assumptions of a 24-hour day. So uh, Rosemary is sitting on the side there, uh, and Derek Bennett and I have been working together a lot to develop these compositional uh, data analysis methods, uh, which orig originate then out of, uh, sort of geological sciences and looking at rock formations. Uh, whereby then we essentially transform uh, these variables then into a different coordinate system <coughs> that, uh, that keeps or maintains the compositional whole and when we're looking at uh, moving from one activity type to another. So the intuition here is, for example, if I just had three activities, if I do more sleep time, if I go up this way, I'm going to drag the other two components somewhere in this space along with me. Um, so one can always imagine a bit, bit, a bit like a spider cobweb effect. So I pull one end of it, the other ends all move there too. So, so this is the sort of philosophy behind this compositional analysis technique. And we believe it's much better suited then to ask the question is if I move from sedentary to moderate activity, uh, what is the uh, health association or impact then of that? So uh, we've got a manuscript currently under preparation in this. Again, looking at incident cardiovascular disease outcomes because we've got greater statistical power with that, this particular disease type. Uh, typical analysis in removing those of prior cardiovascular disease. Uh, we're transforming then these tiniest variables into a different coordinate system to enable us to do this co uh, compositional analysis. And then we can put those uh, uh, essential components then into the Cox regression model. Again, a standard age at risk model adjusted for the standard confounders. Uh, and a key thing with the compositional analysis is actually really hard to interpret what the or what the coefficients in this really mean because they're in this transformed space. Um, so instead what we do then is compare the hazard ratios then to a reference compositional mean uh, to aid interpretability of that. And that will just help in a minute when I show you the uh, graphs from this. So again, we've got around 90,000 participants, again, two and a half years follow-up, 1,400 uh, cardiovascular uh, disease events, uh, 1,100 of these ischemic heart disease, 326 cerebral vascular events. And this is our compositional mean for the UK biobank, or, these, or so this 90,000 person population, so nine hours a day are spent asleep, 10 hours a day sedentary, uh, three and a half hours in light activity, one and a half hours moderate activity, and then a minuscule uh, four and a half minutes a week uh, in vigorous uh, intensity physical activity. So when we think of vigorous as when we're going off for a run, we are really out of breath. So it's um, uh, so where there's a lot of one would say uh, punctuating about or pottering about activity or and maybe moderate is probably mostly people walking about. Um, there is a very small amount of vigorous uh, activity in this population. And then to show you the compositional analysis, now I'm going to orientate you in this graph here. So uh, x-axis then is, uh, we're essentially looking at trading one component off of the other. So looking at moderate activity versus sedentary activity here. So as I go over here, say this would be four hours extra a week of moderate at the expense of sedentary. 
y-axis then is the hazard ratio. So our zero here is the compositional mean. So this is kind of our reference hazard ratio at the compositional mean. So interpretation here is, is as I do more moderate activity at the expense of just sedentary activity, uh, the uh, incidence of cardiovascular disease goes down, i.e. moderate activity is more beneficial and sedentary as one would expect. Over here then we're looking at light versus sedentary and there's no uh, currently statistically significant effect there. Um, it's probably almost going in a slightly worrying direction, but then at least the confidence intervals have saved us in that one. Um, and then uh, over on the other side here, we've got uh, doing more, <coughs> moving towards doing more vigorous activity. There's a huge gain towards from doing basically four minutes a week of vigorous uh, to doing slightly more than that. Um, so there's a very large gain to be got in terms of association with incident cardiovascular disease. And uh, Rosemary, uh, Derek, and I then have developed uh, another way then of looking at this too. So, if we got individuals in this population to do 30 minutes of vigorous activity or an extra 30 minutes of vigorous activity per week, I got them up to 35 um, minutes a week, uh, and then we imagine our spider cobwebs are kind of pulling it towards there, and we're taking it away from the other activities we uh, estimate a 13% uh, reduction or, 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 uh, in terms of cardiovascular disease, incident cardiovascular disease risk. If we think of physical activity guidelines of doing an extra 150 minutes a week, uh, that equates to roughly a 5% uh, lower uh, incidence of cardiovascular disease. And there's a lot of news in the papers then about sedentary behaviour and what one might do about that. Uh, so if we had an hour less a day of sedentary time, there's no real effect there on that. And this is, again, quite consistent I think, with emerging thoughts in the field that uh, physical activity, and particularly vigorous physical activity, might be, uh, or in fact probably is, much more important as a, for a public health guideline target than just lowering sedentary time. And of course there is a question then as to these associations we're finding, are they causal uh, or not? Um, so we're, uh, I guess that's always our holy grail is to try and get towards causality. And of course uh, in the epidemiological world uh, our best measure of that is a randomised control trial. But unfortunately we can't really do a randomised control trial of physical activity because we would like to blind a participant as to whether they're in an exercise intervention or not and that's impossible. Uh, uh, unfortunately, so it's very hard to have an unbiased, randomised control trial in, in physical activity. So, uh, what would be so another uh, possible approach then to this is Mendelian randomisation. So, philosophy is a randomised control trial with an intervention group, control group. They're randomised, so therefore our measured and unmeasured confounders are uh, equally distributed. Process of meiosis, uh, the uh, genotypes or genetic variants are randomly allocated. Uh, so then, if we could find some genetic variants for physical activity, uh, that perhaps then might allow us to do this Mendelian randomization approach, which is analogous to a, to a randomized control trial. So, the beauty of UK Biobank is we've got. Uh, blood markers in all the individuals, they've been genotyped um, at 800,000 different regions of the human genome and then been imputed out to an extra 90 million SNPs or thereabouts, whereby a SNP is a genetic variant. Um, so we've run a genome-wide association study uh, on the top here against the accelerometer measured physical activity and on the bottom the self-reported physical activity. Now, unsurprisingly, we get more uh, hits with the self-reported trait because it's got a much larger sample size. There's 350,000 individuals in this genome-wide association study versus just 90,000 in the, uh, the accelerometer-measured one. However, if we look at traits such as uh, explained heritability, it's much higher with the accelerometer trait. Um, and the genetic correlation between the accelerometer measured one and self-reported one is just 0.33, so 
So a genome-wide association study in self-reported activity might as much be a genome-wide association study in one's perceptions or ability to perceive or cognitive ability all mixed in with physical activity. And the exact same results we get with sleep uh, versus self-reported sleep, uh, for device versus self-reported sleep, genetic correlation of 0.25. So, um, so it doesn't take into question the use of these self-reported instruments, I think, for Mendelian randomization analysis. So we've just concentrated on the uh, device measure traits. And of course, then we can do this across the different uh, activity types. Um, so we've got uh, various <coughs> variants associated with sleep, with sedentary behavior, with moderate activity, uh, and with overall activity as well. So uh, we've uh, reported these, so we can see uh, what types of tissues these are associated with. So unsurprisingly for behavioral trait, uh, there's uh, enrichment, uh, particularly in areas of the central nervous system and various brain tissues uh, are very uh, much enriched uh, for in the same regions as these genetic variants associated with overall activity, uh, sleep duration, and sedentary behavior. We can then see if there are shared genetics with uh, the uh, activity traits uh, in terms of the other disease outcomes. So concentrating just in overall activity, there were 127 different traits, many of them anthropometric actually, so there's I think a very clear uh, association between activity and obesity outcomes, and I'll come back to that in a minute. So we're seeing uh, genetic correlations in the expected direction with all of these uh, cardiovascular disease outcomes. But of course, this is a genetic correlation analysis. What we really want to do then is the Mendelian randomization analysis. And before we did that, we did a check. And Mendelian randomization, we're worried about this concept of horizontal pleiotropy. So if I've got a genetic variant uh, associated uh, with physical activity, I want to make sure it's just associated with physical activity and it's not a proxy for education status or some other factor. So we. But I'm trying to balance off against sort of my sort of my R squared estimates. So how much does my genetic variant explain in terms of differences of physical activity? I want to boost that as much as possible. So if I use traditional genome-wide significance, I'd be only explaining 0.06% of physical activity variation. So if I lower that threshold a bit, uh, I can then explain more variance of physical activity. So this is around 1%. And we've just done some, or we've done very detailed uh, simulations in a horizontal pliotrophy showing that we go down to this 5 by 10 to the minus 6 a threshold for a genetic variant being associated with uh, activity levels uh, that we still do not violate our horizontal pliotrophy um, uh, assumptions. So that allows us then to perform Mendelian randomization, and this is our estimate. So Mendelian randomization suggests that overall uh, they've been uh, genetically predisposed to having higher levels of physical activity uh, is associated then with a lowering of uh, diastolic blood pressure, all the hypertension, uh, and also in a separate paper then by collaborators ours, uh, odds of depression as well. But nothing has come out yet with uh, coronary artery disease, type 2 diabetes, um, uh, and it might be perhaps an issue due to power because we've still got these very low R-squared estimates. Um, or it might be, so it's one of those we're not sure if it's absence of evidence or evidence of absence. I think it's probably an absence of evidence here in this case. Um, so I think we need larger studies in the future so we get better uh, power genetic variants that are associated with activity status. But at least these results, I think, are encouraging that I think it's an area worth pursuing more in larger scale studies because they make sense, these, uh, uh, these particular findings. The activity was also significantly associated with uh, body fat percentage and BMI. Uh, however, then we do lots of sensitivity analysis in these because we do what we call a bi-directional analysis. So we look to see is BMI or, uh, or body fat percentage then also, do they in turn lower physical activity? And they do. So there's, a, there's this bi-directional association between activity and, uh, and 
uh, obesity traits, and I think there's a lot more careful work needs to be done to unpick those. The relative strength of one versus the other seems to be approximately even, so, so I think it's a, it's a very tricky one to unpick apart, and we'll need to do much more work on that. Yes. Okay. So I'm going to skip over these couple of slides here uh, and finish up with some future questions. So what I see things going in the future is we're asking some other key questions, apart from the ones we've just looked at, I think we need more follow-up, larger data sets yet to answer these questions even more exquisitely. But there are a number of also uh, very exciting questions to ask in the future, such as which of these plethora of machine learning measures um, from wearable sensors are best to help us detect, detect earlier disease onset. So uh, the measures we've used thus far have been a priori defined a walking or sleeping or been moderate activity. But perhaps there are some activity types that we just haven't thought of or some measures within the accelerometry uh, data that we just haven't thought of that might be more strongly associated or indeed maybe even specific to cardiovascular disease uh, inherent feature versus a diabetes inherent feature versus a uh, breast or colon cancer inherent feature. So we're beginning to do work looking at this and uh, using deep learning techniques with Xing who's sitting uh, there behind us. Uh, to investigate questions such as that. Also, there's much more work to be done with the Mendelian randomization methods. So with the China Kaduri Biobank study here, we're in March time just about to begin collection on 25,000 uh, individuals with risk-worn accelerometry data in China, uh, and of course we're reaching out to other cohorts too to try and really boost our powers, uh, our statistical power in these studies. Uh, and then finally, if we consider within the sphere of cardiovascular disease, risk prediction, we've got our Q risk scores, etc. There's lots of interest now in polygenetic risk scores and whether they might help improve uh, clinical risk prediction models. Uh, and my group is very much interested in to see with wearable sensors, do they augment uh, these risk prediction models, uh, whereby perhaps in the future then it can be introduced into clinical practice then to help uh, improve these. Uh, risk prediction uh, models such as our Q-risk score uh, and of course much research needs to be done on that before we can decide whether that is possible or not. So with that uh, I will uh, stop. Of course this work is uh, on behalf of many individuals but I hope I've uh, convinced you today that this is certainly an area that's uh, worth looking into in more detail and has got, an imp uh, has got the potential I think to redefine our understanding of how activity, sleep-related behaviours are associated with uh, various uh, health and disease outcomes, and also that there might be the opportunity to, to learn some disease-specific measures from these devices for risk prediction and future. Thank you very much for your attention.